Good morning. I'm glad you are with us this morning. Our regular pulpit minister, Chris McCurley, is out of town, but he will be back this evening. My name is Blake Dozier. I'm the youth and family minister here and get to preach in his absence, so I'm excited about that. If you would, I would like for you all to get out your Bibles and find your way to Philippians chapter 2. While you do so, I would like to tell you about an experience from my past that has framed my thinking about this week's sermon. See, I grew up here, and so many of you know me well. It was the summer of 2001, and you held your children tightly because I had a pickup truck, and I was about to get my driver's license. And y'all who are laughing know because you were here and you were worried. I remember, I remember the week. Um, it was finally almost here, and I, I stood there with my keys in my hand and my work gloves in my other hand, ready to earn the privilege of sharing the road by sharing the cost. And my first paid gig of the summer was a hay hauling gig. So I remember it was early in the morning, and the sun was just peeking over the horizon, and um, Mr. Ferris was his name, who had hired me, was walking through this large field that had a hay bale stretched out as far as the eyes could see with some sort of a magical wand. He would stick it in the bell, and he'd say, not yet, not yet. But when it was time and when they were dry enough, um, it was time to go. If I'd known what was about to hit me, I think I would have appreciated the stillness of the early morning a little more. We were loading onto a semi-trailer, and so the deck was several feet off the ground. He had a special contraption to, uh, to pull the bells up to the deck, and so one of us would walk in front of the trailer, or maybe I should say jog in front of the trailer, and line the bells up with this little picker, and the rest of us were up on top of the trailer, shuffling bells from the back up to the front, as fast as we could, stacking as high as we could, and the taller the stack got, the faster we had to shuffle, and the higher we had to throw. But we finally got that entire semi-truck loaded. So we got to climb on top, and we got to enjoy this relaxing, breezy ride back to the farm, and I, I don't know what exactly I expected to happen when we got there, but my heart sank when I realized that we were now at the barn where all of these bells were going to be stored. We got to unload and restack every last one of those bells. And then we did it again. And we did it again. And we did it again for what seemed like an eternity. I itched and I ached and my hands were blistered and my eyes were scratchy and I had dust in places that I didn't know existed. And for the first time, since I could talk, I questioned how important driving really was. <laughs> I have to say, though, despite the misery, there was a sense of satisfaction in a tough job well done. I remember after two days of hauling when it came time to settle up feeling really good about stuffing that kind of small wad of cash into my pocket. I remember a sense of pride in putting in the bank, knowing that that money came from me. Not my parents, but from me. I remember a sense of pride in claiming that I bought my own gas, even though I'm pretty sure I had a little more help than I let on to. There's pride to be taken in hard work. I'm sure many of you know exactly what I'm talking about, that feeling of accomplishment when great personal sacrifice was made. I want you to take a moment and think about a time when you felt similar. Something that gave you this feeling of accomplishment, achievement, or success. I'll help jog your thinking with a few examples. Maybe 
You get that feeling when you look at a diploma on your wall. Maybe you get that feeling when you think about a business that you have built or a home that you have created. Maybe a career that you've obtained or a purchase that you've made or a portfolio that you've assembled or a family that you have raised. Hopefully by now everyone has something in their head that, that reminds them of a time when they put in the work, when they endured the misery, maybe even found satisfaction and joy in the process, but in the end you finally got to reap the benefits of your labor. You earned it and it felt good. Some of you, in fact, many of you have probably also experienced the flip side of this coin. When you put in an enormous amount of hard work and you didn't get to reap the benefits. Maybe you didn't get paid your fair wages or you made a mistake and lost everything you worked for. Maybe circumstances out of your control took over, your house burned down, your health failed, the markets plummeted, your child made an irrational and silly decision. There are times when we feel so in control and then there are times when we are painfully aware of how little control we have. The older I get, the more aware of this fact I become. Knowing this hasn't stopped me from hard work, and it doesn't mean I don't value and believe that hard work is rewarded. It doesn't mean that there is not merit to our achievements, and it hasn't caused me to throw my hands up in despair, to give up, and to become a couch potato. Instead, I find it cultivating in me a tremendous attitude of gratitude. Allow me to revisit my younger self, and, and you can do so with me. Yeah, I got to haul hay. But that was only possible because Mr. Ferris had spent a lifetime working hard. He had woken up early to plow. He had stayed up late laying out seed. He had invested in a tractor, the equipment surrounding it, a truck, a trailer, a storage barn, and land to grow the hay on. I probably should have been more grateful for that. And then there's my parents. They had driven me to the work site my first day because I didn't get my license till the next. They bought the majority of the vehicle, the clothes on the, my back that made it okay to go out in public, the gloves that covered my hand, and the food that fueled the movements. Should have been more grateful for that. Then God sent rain when it was needed. And he sent it in just the right amount, and he let the ground dry out at just the right time. And he created a seed with the DNA to take nutrients from the ground and assemble those into building blocks and craft a plant. And I, I should have been more grateful for that. The illustration could go on for hours, but I think my point is made. Even our best attempts at self-sufficiency and achievement are overshadowed by an enormous dependence that we have on the choices of, of others, the circumstances of life, and the provisions of God. Think back to your achievement. My guess is that your individual role is relatively small when framed like this. There's a tension there, a balance of personal responsibility with corporate responsibility and with divine providence. It's acceptive, it's normative, and we don't always like it. It doesn't always seem fair, but that tension is what I want to talk about this morning because that tension that we see in our everyday lives should be found in our spiritual lives as well. You should be in Philippians chapter 2. And I want you to look at verse 12 and 13. This is our key text this morning. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
The tension of our physical world is mimicked in the spiritual realm, and I want to lay this tension out on the table clearly and simply. Paul says two things. He says, work out your own salvation, and he says, it is God who works in you. So who's responsible here? Are these statements in opposition to one another? How do we reconcile and understand our responsibility versus God's responsibility? It's not a super easy way to answer what this balance looks like. Theologians have debated it for years and will continue to do so. But for this passage, I believe practical clarity is given by focusing on what we can know. So allow me to highlight a couple of facts from this verse. First of all, saved people are expected to do something. Saved people are expected to do it with a certain attitude. Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Secondly, God works in saved people in two different ways, and he works in those saved people for a specific reason. Verse 13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And finally, saved people work in response to God's work. The text links these two together grammatically, and our work is in response to his. I could simplify this using the language from the text and say, you work out because God works in. In today's sermon, we're going to examine three elements of this biblical truth. We're going to look at the work that God does, the work that we do, and the reasoning that links them together. We'll find that God's work is the reason for our work. So we're going to begin with looking at God's work. This passage was written to saved people. Early in Philippians, they are called saints in Christ Jesus and partners in the gospel. So while the works of God would definitely include the salvation event, this passage is not referencing that event in time. It is referencing something that is currently happening in them. We look back at the text and we see the language is present and active. It is God who works in you. This is a present reality for the Philippians and is a present reality for you. God is working. If you flipped back a chapter to Philippians 1, 3 through 6, you would see Paul write these words. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When he references the first day and the beginning of a good work, Paul's talking about the salvation event. But when he talks about bringing it to completion, he's talking about the ongoing process. Philippians 2.13 is referencing this bringing to completion when it says, God works in you. The process that God carries his children through. Salvation is not a momentary thing that God sweeps in and does and leaves you behind to work out the details. Salvation is a partnership with God, a joining with him, a surrender to him. Paul says God works in you, not worked in you. So God is working in saved people, and that is the first truth that we can know about God's work. So how do you know if God is working in you? Well, Paul gives us two indicators of this work in the text. He says he causes you to will, and he causes you to work. And the key to all of this is his endgame. 
He says all of this is for his good pleasure. God works on your heart and he works on your actions. God caused salvation and he continually works in the saved that their hearts would be given to him and for him. And their actions would be given to him and for him. God works on your attitude and your actions, your desiring and your doing. If we uh, back up just a little bit, we see that Paul had just called the Philippians to desire and do. And he used Jesus as the perfect example and case study. Read verses 3 through 8 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His attitude was completely devoid of selfishness and entirely pointed towards God. His actions were completely devoid of selfishness and pointed entirely towards God. Jesus' will was for God's good pleasure, and his work was for God's good pleasure, both his attitude and his actions. Paul asks the Philippians to mirror this attitude, and he follows this calling by reminding them of the powerful mover who has infiltrated their lives and who makes this very attitude and action possible. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If you are saved, this is your truth and reality. God is working in you to cultivate both attitude and action that point toward him. So it naturally follows that if God is working in you, this will manifest itself in your life. If you draw your eyes back to the text, you will see the little connecting word for. We work out our own salvation for it is God who works in us. Our actions are in response to and because of his work. He is the reason for all of this. This is where we start to get off track. Up until this point, everything makes sense, but then the phrase, work out your own salvation, is thrown on the table, and we can't help but connect the dots between the idea of work and earning. If you obey your work, you receive salvation, your wages. Every hint of this attitude has to be put to death in our lives. Nothing, and I mean nothing you do, merits salvation. This goes against the entire counsel of Scripture. We are saved by the grace of God and grace alone. Our salvation is unwarranted, unmerited, undeserved, and only because of the loving kindness and mercy of God. Listen to the words of Paul from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The working out of our own salvation that Paul is describing is a responsive action, not an action of merit. Salvation is not the result of your work, it's the reason for your work. It's because of what God is doing. If salvation came because of works, we would definitely boast. As it is, we have no room for pride. 
We have no room for back padding. We have no room to feel entitled or that we earned anything because we did not. According to this verse, we are simply fulfilling our purpose when we do good. That's what we were made for. That's why in Philippians 2.12, Paul doesn't say work on your own salvation. He doesn't say work for your own salvation. He says work out your own salvation. Salvation occurred and your life is lived in response to this truth. Which brings us to our final area of consideration, our work. The life that we actually live, what are we supposed to do? We know that God is cultivating attitudes and actions that are centered on his desires. The Christian life is lived out in response to this truth, and so we're left with several more questions about our work. Namely, what actions comprise working out your own salvation? And what does it mean to do these things with fear and trembling? So let's start by considering the first. What actions comprise working out your own salvation? I have three things on the screen. This obviously is not a comprehensive answer. We could take a trip through all of Scripture discussing the life a Christian lives in response to salvation. But Paul's pretty descriptive in the immediate context. And this is where this short list came from. Consider these verses. Starting in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by any, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he clarifies this by describing standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side in the faith and not being fearful of opponents. In summary, I see in these two verses a call to unity. Chapter 2, verse 3, we've already read this. We're going to read it again. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 5 says, Have the mind of Christ. Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition. Later in verse 3, it says, count others more significant than yourself. Verse 8, it says, be obedient to God. Our relationship with others continues to be on display here. But here he's more specific. He calls us to kill the selfish parts of our lives and be obedient to God. When Paul says, work out your own salvation... I believe he is talking about the outward display of Christ in your life. I've misread this verse for a lot of years. I think I failed to connect verse 12 to verse 13, and I found myself dealing with a tremendous pressure to figure everything out. I don't think he's saying you need to figure out every theological nuance and sort through all the puzzle pieces so that you can know and understand how salvation works. He's not telling you to figure something out. He's telling you to act a certain way. Obey God. Have unity with one another. Kill your selfish ambition. 
So let's consider the next question. What does it mean to pursue this obedient, unified, and selfless life with fear and trembling? Again, I ask myself the question, what do I know? I know it can't mean that we are terrified to slip up. This would be inconsistent with Paul's other writings and inconsistent with verse 13. We shouldn't be terrified of making a mistake if God is working in us. Romans 5.1 tells us that we can be at peace with God because of our justification through Christ. A Christian lives a confident life, not a fearful one. So as we wrestle with this little phrase, I think it would be helpful to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where we see in verse 3, Paul uses this phrase about himself. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You can see here, Paul was describing his humble attitude in proclaiming the word of God to them. His weakness, his fear, and his trembling pointed them away from himself and towards God. And I think something similar is happening in Philippians. The fear and trembling part is another reminder of our complete dependence on God for salvation. It is the daily recognition that we can't do it on our own. It means a constant awareness of both the importance of our actions and the complete lack of saving power that they have. The fear and trembling part draws me to the very tension that we introduced at the beginning. See, Paul had a job to do. There was work to be done. But it was all through the power of God, pointing toward God and because of God for the benefit of God. Without God, it would have been impossible, insane, and unproductive to preach the gospel. Without fear and trembling, it would have been self-promoting and sinful. But with both God and the correct attitude, God's good pleasure is fulfilled and selfishness is killed. We don't fear punishment for making a mistake. Jesus took that for you. We fear and tremble that we might become arrogant. Fear and tremble that others might look at you instead of God. Fear and tremble at the knowledge of your incapacity to do anything without God. There's tension here, but not for the reasons I once believed. What I see now is that my personal responsibility to obedience, unity, and selflessness is juxtaposed with my complete inability to make this happen and complete dependence on the divine sovereignty of God to deliver salvation and cultivate in me attitudes and actions that please him. Praise God for his work in us. So allow me to summarize what we've discussed. At the beginning, I asked you to remember a time when through your hard work and perseverance, you accomplished something. I then challenged you to consider how relatively small your personal role in that accomplishment actually was. Many of you sit here saved individuals. You will spend eternity in heaven. And because of your salvation, you're doing a lot of good things. It's easy to look at these outward actions and find merit in them. But when we consider the reality, we are reminded this is not so. What we do is because of what God has done and continues to do in our lives. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God works in us. Praise God for his willingness to do that.
there's an important thing to take note of. And I'm going to ask you this in the form of some questions. If you consider yourself a Christian, I would like to ask you to consider the ways God is working in you and consider the ways you are living that work out. Here's some questions to ask yourself. Is his good pleasure my priority? Are my attitudes and actions pleasing him? Is there growth and change happening in my life? Is my focus transitioning away from self and towards him? If you're a new Christian who is wrestling with some of these, who's wrestling with selfishness, who struggles to keep their focus on God's good pleasure, you can take heart because God has partnered with you in this process. If you are a mature Christian who is wrestling with selfishness, who struggles to keep their focus on God's good pleasure, I have a different question for you. Have you made any progress? Because if you haven't, you need to figure out why not. Paul said God works in you, and if he's not working, it's because he's not there. Why not? Was your salvation an illusion? And this is a time to be honest with yourself because this is where the rubber meets the road. If there is not outward action related to your salvation, then I would argue you have not been saved. God works in the lives of saved people. And if you aren't seeing that fruit, it's time to reevaluate what it was that you experienced to make you think you were saved. What comes out of our lives is a window to what is in our lives. Listen to the words of Christ. Matthew 7, 15 through 16. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. In other words, things might appear good on the outside, but eventually the fruit that you are growing goes on display. What comes out of our lives is a window to what is in our lives. Or consider the familiar words from Galatians 5, 19 through 25. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. A life lived under the guidance of fleshly things yields one type of fruit. A life lived under the guidance of the Spirit yields another, very specific type of fruit. What comes out of your lives is a window to what is in your lives. I hope that I have been very clear that salvation is not earned, but salvation is evident and obvious. It must be worked out, for it is God who works in. What is on display in your life? If God is working in you, if the Spirit is alive and active in you, you will see his fruit. Scripture shows us how genuine salvation happens. Genuine belief in the truth taught in Scripture leads to a broken heart, and a deep desire to restore your relationship with God. This restoration is what we call salvation. It's only possible through the blood of Christ, and it's accepted 
by the believer through the act of being baptized. If you have been trying to work out your own salvation, stop, for God must first work. We would be happy to show you the truth laid out in Scripture, and we would be happy to baptize you into the blood of Christ. If you have called yourself a Christian but see no fruit, I call you to repent. I call you to bring the fear and trembling back into your life. I call you to submit to the work of God in your life. We stand prepared to pray for you, to partner with you. The invitation is always open, but specifically we extend it to you now. Pray that you would respond to the invitation. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.